first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Uh, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. So this week we are joined by the incomparable Jonathan Wendell, Fatality, right? And he is... I mean... A monumental name in esports in general. Like, there's no one who really pioneered the industry, and I say that word intentionally, the industry of esports. Not only was he an incredible player, like, he definitely just fucked up his competition. There's no question about it. it dominated the world of, you know, Quake 3, Unreal Tournament. It just, what an incredible player. He was, but also in terms of brand building, you know, Fatality was, along with Machiavelli, which I'll get into a little bit in the interview, but he revolutionized the way that people who play esports make money. And it was fantastic to speak with him. And I want to get into a little bit, you know, just before we get into the actual interview itself, that, you know, I had my prejudices. I had my predispositions about what he would be like as a human being. You know, I, I had my thoughts. And we all do that. Everyone, every human being does that, right? We we all kind of have an idea of who we're talking to before we speak to them or, you know, make ideas about them as we speak to them. And I tried my absolute best to just put that aside because what you'll see in this interview and I'm, I'm very proud to say that i've accomplished this at least in my own estimation and i hope that you agree jonathan wendell fatality he's not just this this icon he's not just this brand he's not just this you know some people would use the word egomaniac to describe him like he can come across that way because he's been so successful in life but to me, he's a person, he's a human being who's shaped by the experience that he's had in his life. And I didn't, I really honestly didn't think when I agreed to do this interview that it would come across that way. I thought that I would be talking to, you know, a, a symbol. And what I found as I went through this is that I, I really am just, as always, talking to another fragile, honest person, human fucking being 
who's been through, you know, a life that includes triumph, trauma, tribulation, questioning, everything. And I was amazed by the fact that, you know, this person that I hold to is such a high esteem, honestly has been through probably, you know, harder things than any of us could really imagine. You know, he, at a young age, and he'll get into this in the interview, but I just want to tell it right now just to really sell the story. At a young age, he was presented with a situation that really shaped him and who he would become as an adult. And that's not to be diminished. So, you know, for all of you who are tuning in, like, you know, thinking like, oh, yeah, Vitality, you've heard, Thor, you know, Thorin's interview with him. You've heard other people interview him. And not to diminish it, those are all, everybody you've heard interview him. I think they're great. I really especially think Thorin is great. But this is not just a conversation about Fatality, the the Quake player, the, you, you know, UT player, the, the esports guy. This is a conversation with a, a real person, a real person fucking human fucking being and he deserves to be heard and i'm very proud to share it with you i hope that you find some meaning in this and we've got some music it's gonna play for you for um igrak simon i love him i'll leave a link to his uh, other music in the episode notes but when it's over you will be in the keep with mr fatality Well, I mean, I got to where I got uh, by just like never giving up, being relentless, going for, you know, what I wanted in my life. Um, I always had a backup plan in case, you know, uh, my adventure of playing video games didn't, you know, pan out. Uh, but, you know, basically I, um, you know, I sacrificed a lot at a young age as a teenager, uh, graduating high school, right out of high school. Obviously, I moved on my my mom's house to move in with my dad uh, two weeks before graduation and basically uh, trained like crazy. And I just, you know, as a teenager, I always played a lot of sports and I felt like I never really got my full shot to really train as hard as I want to train for a tournament or anything. Uh, so for me, that was like a constant thing that was kind of like not uh, given to me or allowed uh, as a young kid. And so when I became an adult at 18 and graduating high school, I wanted to commit a thousand percent to one thing and that was esports and gaming. And basically that led me on to, you know, going to a tournament, showing the world that I have the talent and the skill. And, uh, shortly after that, you know, companies were taking notice of, uh, of my talent and my kind of my, uh, stardom, I guess, uh, at, at a very young age. And then eventually exploded over the next few years. Um, uh, to be kind of globally known as, you know, one of the best gamers in the world. There's like really no denying that just brief history on like where I come from. Uh, I started playing Quake three when I was in high school and, you know, at the time, you know, you go Google or, you know, look up on YouTube Quake three and you were in fact the man, like there was no getting around it. Uh, there was a point in time when you were like <laughs> the only, you know, actually famous esports 
player that I had ever heard of and any of my friends had ever heard of. And that, when I first started this podcast, that was all people with, you know, fatality, fatality, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, there's, there's just no getting around it, dude. You, you definitely kicked ass and took names uh, in your journey through all of it. Um, yeah. And, and that's kind of the goal, you know, like when you're playing all these tournaments, you know, kind of have that no mercy attitude, you know, I didn't want there to be room for, you know, a second person to have a thought that they were like doing what I was doing. So when I was switching games and so forth, I was out there to, you know, prove that I wasn't just the best Quake 3 player in the world, but I wanted to switch to other games and show uh, my proudness in other uh, shooters as well. Um, I, I didn't want to be titled just as a Quake 3 champion. Um, I wanted to show people that, like, you know, I'm the best game in the world. Uh, and, you know, obviously I stayed in my genre of shooters, though. Um, um, but, you know, I feel like that's what the most popular esports titles are, are these uh, first-person shooters. Uh, you see Counter-Strike Go uh, now and in the past and the last two decades. I mean, it's still like one of the most popular games out there. Uh, obviously, arena shooters have kind of taken a backseat. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the reason why arena has taken kind of a backseat in general popularity is just the skill level is so high um, that the masses, the mainstream just can't get into it. You know, you have guys who are just so dominant at playing arena shooters that, uh, you know, essentially it makes people uninstall the game. <laughs> uh, you know, like, you know, people like that team environment, feeling like they have a chance. In 1v1 deathmatch, which what I played was a very like final outcome. It's basically you won and you knew you're the best, or you lost and you knew you sucked. And uh, that's why I loved about arena shooters and 1v1 dueling was because it was really a mono a mono uh, kind of experience. And um, you know, I kind of missed that in esports a little bit because people always can lean off like, "Oh, my team didn't play well," or I, I just hate excuses. Uh, you know, I want you know, I like it when it's final. There's a lot of people my age, like not me, but a lot of my friends and stuff, you know, they were into Fortnite and PUBG and stuff like that when it got really popular. And I think it was a couple of years ago, I was sitting at work and I had pulled up your stream and you were playing, I think you were playing Fortnite. It was PUBG a lot. (laughs) This particularly was a Fortnite video because they, my my friends were watching it. They're like, was this guy going to build? I'm like, trust me, he doesn't have to. (laughs) And then you fucking annihilated (laughs) like an entire team. You're so you're so gifted at the shooting portion of it that it's what's weird about Fortnite is it's really not shooting is kind of the backseat of the game, right? It's mostly about yeah. building and you know just out- building and creating opportunity. Yeah. So, like, uh, you know, obviously Fortnite was actually exciting to me um, because it showed me a new fighting technique, a new way to 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 battle, mm-hmm. and. I actually kind of liked it, you know, just because of the, of the sense of, you know, now I'm editing walls and building and so forth. And, you know, you're trying to predict like, you know, how much bullets you want to use to knock down this wall and how much you to knock down this wall, then build on that wall, then edit that wall and then get your shot off. Uh, you know, it, it, it definitely was interesting. Um, I feel like it's very uh, uh, camp savvy, like plus back uh, mentality, uh, which I'm not a big fan of because uh, I just like action. Um, more than uh, defensive gameplay all the time. And, like, you know, whenever I see a game being built or made, I'm like, can we make it a plus forward game? Like, where being aggressive pays dividends, you know? And, you know, it's just like what I like in, in games like that. I mean, I played PUBG as well uh, in 2017 when it first launched. Uh, I played it for about, I mean, I played it for about two plus years. I mean, um, but 
I decided to kind of do like my old training regiment uh, towards PUBG, and obviously it's a lot of survival tactics. It gives me flashbacks to Quake Four almost, like where you just you're just trying to shoot the rail gun run, and you know just constantly uh, just playing defensively. I think I think that's what Quake Four was kind of like to me, and PUBG was kind of the same thing. Like you know I played solos a lot, um, and basically it's just minimizing your time exposed to the world because. At any moment, a guy could pull out a car 98k uh, sniper and snipe your head off. You could, you know, you could. There's so many different different ways to die in that game, especially if you have multiple people trying to shoot you because you're, you're in a server with 100 people. So minimizing risk all the time is like name of the game, which you know I'm also a master of. Um, so I deployed that tactic for about a month and a half and actually got to number one in North America solos, solos, and uh, held that spot for about 10 days. So it's pretty cool to like, you know. Obviously, I'm not playing like in the biggest tournaments anymore, but you know, I can still put that kind of practiced uh, regiment in, into place in a game that's current today, and and still show that uh, I can dominate that game. What's interesting about how you're, you're very analytical about you know how how the game works. It's kind of it seems to be your ability that you've developed to you know jump from game to game and still be highly successful comes from the fact that you can. Some people just learn mo- like muscle memory, like you know how how do I play Quake really well, and you know just those techniques, yeah. and then they focus on that for their entire life. But your ability to kind of dive in and figure out what's different and how you can get that edge sets you apart. And I think that's why you know when you were doing the uh, the Fatality House deal, right? And you have so many students, you know, former students of yours that I've met over the years that are so cool. You know, I've talked to Miss X on the show before. I've talked yeah. to, uh, I'm really good friends with Mega Blazer. If you remember him, he's Violent Heart now. Yeah. And, uh, Jared also. And I, I told Mega Blazer, like, I was, hey, man, I'm going to do this interview with Fatality. And he sent me these pictures that were like you guys playing uh, Mario Kart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and even, even that, he's like, yeah, he just, he was fucking freaking out every time he won a Mario Kart. Like, what, what gave you I destroyed all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you have no idea about my my Mario Kart my Mario Kart skills, but uh, they're they're pretty nuts. Uh, I was so when we were training for I think it was the Painkiller uh, World Tour that year or whatnot. Um, when we were, we had a, I had a six band land center in my basement of my house, the you know, house I was renting out from Jared uh, Street Runner, my old my old uh, buddy from high school and you Check know out, roommate uh, and all. ZenGaming.com, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Zen was uh, one of uh, my uh, p- uh, players I sponsored through the Fatality brand. Um, but yeah, anyways, whenever we're training and playing, we always had like this downtime. And I, I always like advocated that we needed downtime to relax. And Mario Kart was like kind of our caveat to relax. I remember one day we played so much. We, you know, there's, we, have a, we have a massive like 65, 70-inch screen in the front living room. And we have four GameCube controllers hooked up to it. And, and it, I like, you know... I'm, t- you know, I'm just smashing everyone. I mean, I'm like, I think I had like a hundred and something first place wins, and like <laughs> the next guy was like at twenty or something like that. You know, <laughs> twenty, ten, and like six or whatever. It was hilarious. But uh, I, you know, in, in every game, like you know, just like Mario Kart, there's just you know, in Mario Kart, there was an edge of like when to be in first place and when not to be in first place. When to get a uh, the question mark uh, cube thing to get a a certain power up, whatever deal was, and then you could play off that right. Yeah. And like with one lap, lap left, all these kind of like little details to excel at that right time. So I knew the window of opportunity, right? In Quake and Unreal Tournament and Painkiller, all these games have different fighting techniques 
So, you know, obviously uh, in Quake, in the early days, getting the, uh, the first kill was actually massive because there's random spawn points. So one kill could lead to, you know, two, three, or four kills because of, you know, person getting unlucky with spawns and so forth. But in reality, he shouldn't have died in the first place. So that's on him. But then uh, Quake 3 started slowing their game down and making it more uh, slow-paced. So then it became more important about keeping control of the map. Uh, in Unreal Tournament, all the fights were medium to far range. There was really no close combat fighting. So I could lower my sensitivity even more in that game and be even more accurate. And so in Unreal Tournament, you know, the fighting was really kind of slow-paced. It was more about like catching your opponent off guard and surprising them. I mean, every game is about surprising your opponent. But like... That was more of like you had to do that. You had to surprise him to get a kill because if he heard you coming, he could always back and run away, back, run away, back, run away. And, you know, you got to catch the guy being too aggressive in a certain situation. Um, and Painkiller, it was a, a, it was about timing items and so forth, but the, it was kind of like a throwback to Quake 3, the original Quake 3. Painkiller was this really fast-paced game where if you killed a guy in the game, he would spawn anywhere. It was random spawn, and then you could run the table. You can get two, three, four, five, six kills uh, after the after the initial kill. So dying in Quake Three in the early days and dying in Panko are almost the exact same. Whoever gets the first kill is going to have a massive advantage going forward. Uh, so you need to be very careful uh, about you know how you die and when you die and and so forth. Uh, you got to learn how to pick your fights. So I always loved playing all the different games I played and learning all the different styles of gameplay to succeed in those games and i do when i went from quake 3 to unreal tournament i was lost i didn't i was you know in, in my my mind i was horrible you know i was not i was not good i was you know i went to a qualifier and took like fourth or something like that you know and i was like that's not me you know if i go to qualifier usually i'm taking first every time you know i have a track record that shows like if i know the game like i, I take top three over 90 percent of the time i take first over 60 percent of the time and so you know uh, playing on a tournament was uh, learning that new fighting technique. And then eventually, obviously, I peaked at the right time with the MTV True Life episode on uh, on MTV. Uh, and, you know, all I know is I trained as hard as I could. I practiced as hard as I could. I did everything I could possibly do to be prepared in two months from that qualifier that I took fourth in or whatever to go to that tournament. Then I went to the tournament that I smoked everyone. I mean, I, it was like one of my best performances I've ever had in my esports history, actually. Uh, I only died an average of 1.5 death per game. So, I mean, literally in a 15-minute match, I'm only dying 1.5 times uh, in, in the match. And so um, it kind of shows like how dominant I was during that time. And I used to love keeping track of my stats, like of different things. And uh, during the World Tour of Painkiller, especially, like I used to deploy different strategies like throughout, throughout the, the year. Like, okay, this term I'm going to be super aggro-aggressive on this map. This this tournament I'm gonna be super defensive in this tournament. So I'm always changing my play styles. I love A B testing everything, and it's just for me it's a lot of fun to know how to play both positions very well, either on offense or defense, or just being crazy sometimes. And you know the best players in the world I think have all facets to be the best game in the world. They have good aim, they have good movement, they have good strategy, they have good timing. You know they have all these skill sets, right? But the best players in the world are also a little crazy at times because they know they have to throw a wrench into the strategy. Because if you're just an ABC guy running the map and doing strategy only, the strategy guy is going to die at the power-ups, at the items, all the time. You play against a defensive guy, eventually you're going to bleed him out, uh, and eventually he's you know you can you, you'll you'll find your your moment to get him. 
If a guy's offensive, he's going to die anywhere because he's an aggressive person in general. But, uh, you know, I think it's very important to know all those different uh, play styles. And I try to learn all of them. So when you, you know, were taking on a student and you're trying to teach them and instill all of these ideas in your mind, I, I understand that you were kind of actually quite secretive about, you know, like don't share, you know, not sharing demos and like keeping information away f- basically from your competition at the time. Yeah. Some people today kind of have this like totally different idea. You know, everybody's got their live gameplay on Twitch. You can study up on an opponent very, very easily. But, you know, what was your goal as far as instilling these ideas and, you know, people that were coming to you for the sake of learning and being successful? Well, you know, if, if I, if I liked you and I, and I, uh, you know, um, you know, you were a training partner or whatnot, you know, we, I had simple rules, you know, there's no recording demos. There's no, when press talks to you or another gamer talks to you about what happens in the training, we don't talk about it. You know, we don't talk about favorite maps. We don't talk about favorite weapons. We don't talk about anything. Like if they ask how good you are just, or how good I am, just tell them he's really good. Like be very vague about it. Like yeah. there's no reason to answer the question. And like, that's the benefit of training with me, you know? So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm giving you guys opportunity to train with me. And I, I promise you, you're getting the best training you possibly can get here. Like, you know, I, I was very proud of like how I trained and, and, you know, I surround myself with fun people too. Like the people I was training with were actually just fun guys to talk shit with too. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun training and, um, you know, I don't know. We, we, everyone was on the same page. I think I only had one person, uh, uh, one quick three player uh, lost cause that kind of broke the rule, and then we had to kick him out of the the training uh, thing. But he was the only guy I ever had a problem with. You, pretty much everyone was spot on. They understood the the trust and the honesty of each other, and you know that was the deal. So how does that like you know inform someone? I'm a little I don't know struggling to put the words here. You have a very strong personality, right? Like you kind of dominate the room any time that you walk into it. You know, uh, when people talk about fatality, they talk about like this sort of force, right? It, you're you're not even a person, you know, to some people. You're like this icon, <laughs> and and I wonder, like, how you know, how does someone learn from that? Like, how does someone look at that and find a way to? So, is it just? All right, we're just going to train together because I don't really understand what quite the process was. You know, we're just going to play games together until you get better, or were you like actually teaching, you know, fundamental ideas? No, I mean, like, I mean, there would be times when we have like uh, theory crafting where we talk about theories and so forth. And, you know, with Zen, I shared a lot of my uh, top secret things um, that I had on my own, my own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guys, some of the guys I trained with, they were like top three, two players in the world. They get to play against me. So that's like their kind of thing. And yeah, I would share ideas with them too and so forth. But in reality, you don't want to share every little detail. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I mean, they're so far behind or they're so like, you don't want to overwhelm them either. But like, you know, they're they're just getting better every day. I mean, literally out of my training camp for the world tour, three people took finish in the top eight at the world tour finals that mm-hmm. came out of my training camp. So obviously it was it works. I took first, uh, uh, and I think Wombat and Zen finished in the top uh, eight uh, back then. And so, you know, these guys trained with me all day, every day. Um, you know, Wombat was an amazing player in the early days of Quake Three. Obviously, was one of the guys that knocked me out of my very first pro tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, he took he 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 maybe he maybe finished third. <laughs> uh, 
I was really upset that I didn't get to win that first one. But I think when, not winning my very first tournament that I entered, it gave me this hunger uh, for the rest of my life. Uh, because I think if I if, if I thought esports was easy, I would not have tried so hard. You know, knowing how hard it is to win a championship and so forth, it made me really value all the ones I did win. Because uh, you know, it sucks losing, but you know, um, I'm just I'm glad I I had that hunger uh, and desire to to win. But uh, yeah, I mean, the guys we trained with, man, it was dude, it was awesome. Like I loved every bit of, bit of it. I mean, traveling to Germany, traveling to Sweden, traveling to South Africa. Mm-hmm. Traveling all around the world, uh, living in apartments, houses, pa- you know, kids' parents' houses, like, you know, living in the guest bedroom in the basement, having land centers set up in the middle of uh, people's dorms uh, in their uh, apartments and their houses in their basement of their houses, having parents feed me, you know, like, yeah. it, it, I mean, it, it was a trip, man, like a uh, total, total adventure of, of a life. And uh, I loved every, every bit of it. And, to uh, travel to over 30 countries to play video games uh, and esports has been a, a blessing for me. And it's, it's been a lot of fun to kind of spread the word of esports across the globe and kind of be that front runner, you know, talking, you know, barnstorming these countries and telling them about esports and how it's going to, is coming, you know, and I was living proof of it every day. Um, you know, I mean, there's this one like little video clip of like my, kind of my dominance, uh, from like 2000 to 2010, but like, you know, I was the highest paid gamer in esports for over a decade. And that was, you know, strictly tournament wins. And it just shows like how much, you know, I love traveling to compete against the best players. And I, I, you know, fight Australia, Great Wall of China, um, Russia, uh, Brazil, um, Chile, all over the Scandinavian countries, all over Europe, obviously here in America and Canada and Mexico. And like I just love competing. At the end of the day, it's just like even today, it's still in my blood. I love competing, and I compete now in sports as well, like playing golf or hockey or paddle tennis or whatever. Like, but like you know, for me, I'm a I love playing sports and I love playing esports. I'm like I like both of them because they both revolve around competition, and you can only do certain ones at a certain time of the day. <laughs> so I try to balance my life with competition all the time. What happened to you when you were a kid that turned you into this? competitive machine like you know who hurt you that's what i really want to get at <laughs> uh well it's funny you ask that um you know as a young kid uh, from like basically five to 13 i played baseball uh hockey uh football you know we won the pop Warner championship when i was like 12 or 13 years old uh in least something missouri and so i just played a lot of sports as a kid and then i was really good at billiards so at pool um i was very talented at pool and I used to gamble from time to time. <laughs> I was specifically uh, a, told to ask you about billiards. That was going to come up at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, yeah, so I've won some money playing pool at the pool halls. And um, I was, you know, I was pretty much the number one ranked like junior, like like 12 or 13 year old kid in Missouri at, at when I was that age. Like I, I was, that's how good I was at pool. So I want, you know, I played against all the kids across the whole state. I mean, you know, people, you know, hundreds of miles away heard my name when I was only 12 or 13, you know, so I already kind of experienced like people like knowing my name. And I just thought that was crazy. Like, There's no way someone in St. Joe or two hour car drive away knows my name. Like, and I was like, no, seriously, they know that you play here and they know you're the guy to beat like, you know, whatever. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, you know, I love playing pool. So then 
Um, I had a manager at one point, and then I was supposed to travel to go to Las Vegas, Nevada, to compete for ten grand when I was like twelve or thirteen years old. And my parents went through a divorce. Uh, you know, it led me to even like running away from my <laughs> running away for a day. <laughs> uh, you know, I called my dad and said, "Dad, pick me up." <laughs> uh, but I ran away from my mom's house because she wouldn't let me go. Uh, my dad was supportive of my competitive nature. Um, so just like it was an ordeal, but, uh, and then, you know, my mom had me go talk to a lawyer and the lawyer told me I'll never be a pro at anything. Uh, and so I, it, he just pissed me off. Like, uh, I was like, I'm going to, you know, you don't know who I am. You don't know what I, you know, what I've already accomplished at this young age. You know, I'm not just some kid that's blowing smoke up your ass. Uh, you know, you know, I, you know. I, I, you know, I, I vetted myself. I went around for years, you know, like, you know, I mean, as a kid, you know, my dad owned a pool at one point and all the kids that were older than me, like seven, eight, you know, 10 plus years older than me, they would take me around to pool halls and we'd go win money. And, uh, you know, and I was very straightforward. I was like, Hey, you know, play this kid for $25 a game and let's see who wins. And then you win two games, get 50 bucks in your pocket. I get 50%. My buddies get 50%. And then, we ended up going to Seven Eleven and playing Mortal Kombat all night. <laughs> that was uh, that was my life as a like a 12, 13 year old kid. You know, uh, I loved it. It was a trip, man. Uh, <laughs> and so that's that's what we loved to do back when we were kids. And uh, you know, these guys obviously being older than me and having a car and able to get around and back me as a young uh, pool player. But but yeah, that's that lawyer pissed me off. You know, and just I just I've always just wanted to kind of show how much desire I have to compete and train and practice. Like I said, I felt like I was torn from that as a young kid, and you know, even like you know, even in high school tennis. I mean, we're a pretty big school. Like you know, you don't you don't we don't have a bunch of slouches there. I mean, our, our you know it's like a five A school or whatever deal is. Um, so there's a lot of students, but like you know, I, I became team captain uh, of the tennis team my uh, junior and senior year. I mean. And so, and that was just practice, 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 practice. You know, I love playing uh, tennis and I love competing. And, uh, but even then, like I was just a casual tennis player. I was never going to go to college to play tennis. I was never that good. Uh, you know, if I had to self rank myself, I was a 4.5 tennis player, uh, or like a, a good one. And, and, you know, if you're not 6.0 or you're not, you're not 5.5 five or 6.0, you're not going to college to play tennis. Uh, so, I was like your high school badass. That's, that's as far as I got with that. But like, that's the thing. Like, I didn't get to train my whole life to play one sport, you know, and esports and gaming was that opportunity to, you know, kind of go for it all. And, uh, and that's, that's what I loved about it when I turned 18. I was like, I'm, I'm doing this a thousand percent now. Like, I'm, no one's holding me back. I'm going to live wherever I have to live to, to find out. I have to find out. And that was the biggest thing. There's no regrets. I wanted to find out. If I had it or didn't have it, and uh, I, f- I found out I had it, and then uh, the rest is history, kind of. No, I think you know we've found the root of it. I, I, I'm interested in this idea that a lot of people kind of find themselves in a place of competition or or high art or you know what great accomplishments, right? almost always have a root in some form of trauma, right? Nobody does anything great if they don't have something to prove. You know, you very rarely find somebody who's just like, everything was totally cool and great and awesome. And also I went on to do great things, except maybe like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He, I, I'm sure he had some trials and tribulations <laughs> in his life too. But, you know, the, the outward picture, if you go watch like a documentary about him, it's like, yeah, he just succeeded at fucking everything. 
from birth to, you know, till he's dead. He'll probably be the president or some shit before he dies. <laughs> but yeah, that is it because, you know, the, the picture that's kind of painted of you is like all, all we, the public really know is that you're just a winner, you know, like he's just won everything. And then now he's fucking, you know, s- selling game chips and all, all kind of crazy stuff, putting his brand everywhere. But the, yeah, the truth is that you, you went through that moment, you know, at an early age that kind of taught you that you had something to prove. And to go a little bit further, you mentioned how, you know, you're going around with other people and you're, you're playing pool and you're gambling on it and you have, you know, you're splitting pots, you know, like, Hey, you know, you know, sponsor, you know, take me to this place and, you know, handle the money and then split it 50, 50, that kind of shit taught you how to do business at a young age too. It taught you how to negotiate. So that's really interesting shit, man. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating when I look back to it and like, you know, as a young kid, I, I was always wondering if my dad really loved me. <laughs> like, <laughs> he let me do everything. You know, he really let me live life. And, uh, you know, he, when I was 10 years old, he, he, he trusted me to walk across the freeway. You know, I mean, he just had, he knew I had the common sense to make the right choices. Yeah. And, uh, and so he just had a lot of trust in me. Um, he understood, look, you know, make sure you look both ways, left and right, you know, like, and, <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I ran a baseball card shop with my dad, uh, when I was, uh, gosh, when I was like six years old, from six to like 11 years old, I, we had a baseball card shop and a pool hall eventually. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes my dad would go off on a golf trip and leave me there to run the business. And it was, it was, it was cool. I, I loved the responsibility and, and the trust. My dad's had a, a very trustful relationship where we just tell the, the, you know, the bloody truth sometimes. It's just, you know, you just have to, uh, the honesty is the most important thing. Definitely. And you have to be able to make mistakes. I mean, obviously your dad didn't want you to die when you crossed the freeway, but. <laughs> well, the, so, so funny stories like behind the pool hall, uh, my sister and I were playing and I fell into the Creek and cut my wrist open. Uh, so you never really see it, but I actually have like this massive gash on my left wrist from six year old injury. I mean, obviously this, this injury is about six inches long now, but you know, I, uh, let, let me do whatever I want to do also came with some, some scars. So, uh, you know, but you know, you learn from those experiences and I always, I still blame my sister for, uh, for my wrist. <laughs> I always give her crap, you know, but, uh, it's just family dra- uh, drama, but not really drama, just a comedy really. Uh, so, you know, it's fine. Obviously I've made it out. Okay. But being injured, you know, I've never really had full capability of my left hand, to tell you the truth. Like it's uh it's limited in range. Uh so I always wonder if I had full range of my left hand, what it would be like if I just never never knew of that time in my life. I've always had an injured left hand my whole life. You know, and it's not injured like where I can't use. It. I can still play golf, I can still play hockey, I can still grip it, I can hold it, I can you know, obviously I can touch, you know, I can move the keyboard around really well and so forth, but uh it's just like one of those thoughts you have, like, you know, if I had a perfect left hand, like what would I be stronger there? Would things be a little bit different? You know, like, but it's just like, you just don't know. Cause I mean, it happened when I was six. So I, I just, I just remember when it happened. If you didn't go through that experience and you didn't have the muscle development that you now have in your left hand, I bet you'd suck. You wouldn't even be as good. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, there's the right hand does a lot with the shooting and so forth, but, um, uh, but you know, I, you know what the funny thing was, that's what got me into sports actually being injured. My left hand actually got me into sports and my parents pushed me so hard to play sports because, uh, 
of the exercises I need to rebuild the left hand. You know, mm-hmm. like so I play I played catcher a lot as a kid growing up in baseball. So you're every 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 throw you're just constantly working on you know your left hand like squeezing squeezing you know like and uh, I remember they had me washing the dishes in hot water and everything and so uh, you know I think a lot of that was you know parents felt kind of guilty about it but obviously they knew they had a they had to work on rehabilitating rehabilitating their son's uh, left hand and uh, yeah now it's strong and healthy and it's been strong and healthy for for basically probably forever you know I, I don't really remember ever being weak besides when i had the cast on but i was such a young kid you know six i didn't really know any difference besides i had a big hole in my left hand do you still train like doing physical exercise a lot is it still part of your life or yeah i, I wouldn't say it's as much as it used to be i mean um you know i'm not running two miles every day anymore uh but the last three years i've been playing hockey a ton mm-hmm. uh, i've been playing hockey like you know two to four times a week depending on what's available and I'm playing uh, paddle tennis as well, which is like a kind of like an outdoor activity. It's like a smaller tennis experience, but you still get a pretty good sweat. I'm actually playing in a tournament here in a couple of weeks. And so, yeah, I mean, physical fitness and just being healthy. Like I still think about that all the time. You know, I, I was, I, I was after three years of playing hockey, I was getting to the point of like, okay, I'm, I'm about ready to make the turn. Like I could feel that I was getting faster and faster on the ice and I was getting uh, more deadly around my opponents and just, you know, I'm scoring a lot of, you know, I'm scoring goals. I'm playing like sea level hockey, which is, you know, kind of like, I would, I would compare it to like your, you know, your, your high school league, you know, kind of thing. Like I would, you know, some of the guys played college on my team. Like they actually went to Boise state and played hockey or whatever. Um, so some of those guys are legit, like real hockey players that played on a collegiate level. So we have a good team. We actually won the sea level championship, uh, like two seasons ago. Uh, which was actually amazing. But as I was like making my biggest strides this year in March, I was like, I was like, man, I'm getting so fast. Like, like I'm getting to the point now where I think I'm like my body and everything's about to take another step to the, I'm going like C level to B level very fast in hockey. Like I, I feel like my endurance is up there. My, my agility, my sprint, like everything's like kind of like getting the, going in the right direction. And then I was beating this guy on the right side past the blue line and, he, uh, this has happened this, just this year in March, March 11th. Uh, he, uh, ch- he checked me, which is a non check league. It's like a beer league hockey, but he checked me, sent me in a hydroplane into the wall. And, uh, my skate got stuck on the wall and the ice at the same time. And I broke my fibula, broke my ankle. Yeah. So that happened this year. And so right when the lockdown happened, uh, across the world, basically I was already locked up anyways because I had a broken ankle. And then basically, uh, it's healed now. I've, I've gotten back on the ice and started playing paddle and stuff again. Uh, I, I say it's still like probably somewhere in the 80 percentile, like healed, but it's, it's getting better all the time. And, uh, it, luckily for me, it was a clean break, uh, on the fibula. And so, you know, my goal is to kind of get back to like pushing hard again in sports and so forth. But, you know, it's just been weird with the whole COVID lockdown for everyone that, you know, Right now, it's just not the optimal time for me to be doing all, all those exercises. And, you know, also I'm working hard on some business stuff as well. So just, uh, you know, I got, I got ready up. I got fatality. I just did, uh, the fatality, a diabolical event, uh, this last weekend. So just like, you know, I, I have a lot of things going on where it kind of limits my playtime <laughs> to, to stay outside. So I understand completely, but. 
I am curious. Uh, Jared actually runs a website now called Mind Body Gaming, where he, he has a yeah. lot of really great content, you know, about how to just take care of your body and and also have that gamer lifestyle. But I'm I'm curious for you, like what physical exercises do you sort of recommend that specifically benefited you as an esports player? Yeah, I think uh, you know you got to have diversity and so forth. I mean, the thing is, if you're really trying to become a world champion or a professional gamer. That's your life. It's all. That's all. It's that's all it is. Like training, practicing, all that stuff. But being well diverse to where you're like, you know, you want to get your workout in, but as in the minimal amount of time possible. Because every second you're not playing, you're not getting better. Uh, is kind of how I used to think about it. You know, the biggest break you could ever take off from gaming, if you want to keep all your skills uh, of wherever you had that previous day, is two days. But the most you can ever take off in esports and gaming, if you want to keep all the skills you already had and, and not lose any of your skills, two days is the absolute max you could take off. And if you go day, if you go take three days, like you come back, you'll notice that you're sluggish, slower, or you're forgetting like basic things. Uh, I used to A B test myself like crazy. So I, I, I kept track of everything. And oh, uh, the other thing, um, you know, what's the quickest workout you can possibly do? It's run. running. That's yeah. why. That's why I did. Just go. Go for a run. Go get that two mile run in. Like that. That was my goal. Two miles. Get two miles in. Come home. Do fifty uh, setups. Uh, you know, fifty push ups or twenty push ups. Whatever you can do. And then, and then that's your workout for the day. You did your did your two mile run. You got some push ups in. You got some sit ups in. And then, you know, now you gotta get back to like okay. You gotta eat food. You gotta relax. You know, you gotta get your hours in. You know, you gotta keep playing and and so forth and. Uh, me surrounding myself with really uh, awesome people, like just like just cool people in general that I trained with, made it feel like it wasn't an eight plus hour workday. You know, it was it was half that time. But uh, I always say eight plus work hour workday, but I always think of like people like in traditional jobs, like an eight hour workday. Like how many minutes were you actually working? Like when you walked from point A to point B, you really weren't working. I mean, you were walking. You know, like, like I actually did eight hours of actual gameplay. So when I say eight hours, uh, eight hours of gameplay, I'm not talking about I was in eight hours of actual combat of a, of a situation in a moment to compete or like I'd be in a tournament. So I don't know what that equates to, but like that's, you know, I'm doing eight, 10, 12, sometimes even 17, 19 hours a day, depending on like how crazy I am at the moment or what my strategy is. I'm I'm like in the moment actually competing. I'm not in the lobby waiting to ready up. I'm not uh you know in front of my computer browsing the web or you know whatever deal is. I'm actually in a physical moment of the game. And um and I think that was kind of like, you know, my you know, that was some of my secret sauce, you know, like that was kind of like what you know, I would wake up and I was on fire. <laughs> like <laughs> I would do these uh train like when I did that 17, 19 hour day stretches, I would do that like once a month. You know, it was, it wasn't like a, cause it really messes up your schedule. You get kind of in a complete funk after that because your, your timetable is all messed up and everything like that, waking up and going to sleep and all that stuff. But I would do it like once a month. I would do like this crazy session, like where it's almost like a two day event. And, and, you know, it helped me learn how to play also tired. Um, so, you know, I would literally like after I did like a 19 hour session one day and wake up the next day to start playing again, I was on fire. I couldn't miss a shot. Couldn't miss anything. I mean, it was just like, 
it was just like I was instantly on. And like people talk about warm up, like I got to warm up and everything like that. Like, dude, it was like there was no warm up for me. Like I was on fire all the time, every second. It was just like it, everything was flowing. And I think that comes down to all my practice and training. And then like, you know, this this sick day of like 19 hours of gameplay kind of thing. But, you know, that was that was what I did. That is very, I don't know. It's strange because there seems to be no particular like regimen other than, as you said, just hit the ground running and play. But because sleep is very important and I notice a lot of people, you know, just in general, if you spend a lot of time with the PC, I don't know if it's a blue light thing or just an adrenaline thing, but a lot of people really struggle with sleep and it's not something that they prioritize. I think if you ran like an exercise, you would naturally just get tired because of just, you know, the exhaustion of just doing the grind you know like i would go my, my regimen is i had to go to bed at 4 a.m every night so i, I mean I, you know and i wake up at noon so basically 11 55 i wake up i go to the computer and i hop in a game with one of my buddies that are already down there training and we just go at it for four hours and that's another one of my tricks you know like waking up and going right into a gaming mode moment mm-hmm. it's like the biggest life hack <laughs> to like getting your hours in <laughs> because you're not really actually awake yet you're still like trying to get your bearings right so like it was so funny like the first hour hour and a half almost would literally fly by you wouldn't even know it happened you know and so i was able to get my four hours like half my day in by 4 p.m every day and then at 4 p.m i go for my run i go run i get my push-ups my sit-ups in have my lunch relax get two more hours in relax, maybe play some Mario Kart with the guys, just hang out, and then play another two hours before 4 a.m., then repeat the next day. So uh, no breakfast? So, uh, so breakfast to me was like, um, I, I for breakfast back then was orange juice, grape juice, some kind of juice. You know, that would be my breakfast. And so, uh, and then at after my run and after my exercise, I'd come inside and I'd have like a turkey sandwich, ham sandwich, you know, I'd have chips or whatnot and then that was kind of like my lunch you know it was like be like two it'd be two full sandwiches with some chips and uh turkey turkey ham and cheese sandwich ham and cheese sandwich and then then basically i would relax and you know kind of chill for a second then i would see who would want to play two more hours with me i'd get someone to say okay i'll do two hours with you and then i'd do two hours with him then i'd go upstairs later on and i would have dinner uh and then I'd have dinner probably, you know, sometime before midnight, I guess. And then, you know, that would be like chicken noodle soup. <laughs> I think I ate a lot of chicken noodle soup back then. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my, my cost of living was very cheap back then. <laughs> uh, I, I was always amazed at how much money I could save. Yeah, so then I'd have chicken noodle soup. And then, basically, I would chill, hang out, play more Mario Kart, whatever, and just kind of, like, chill a little bit. But then if I was, you know... I wanted to work on something specific. I would let's go. Do, let's go play now. Let's get the two hours in now. Like you know, I was trying to get my my final two hours of the day in before four a.m. But like, if I can get it done before two two a.m., it's even better because everything after two a.m. is kind of a bonus time. And then basically, I would work from you know, I'd play more. I'd do nine hours a day instead of eight. I would do ten hours a day instead of eight or nine. You know, like every day was kind of different. Just kind of dep- depend on the mood, but you know, I had to bare minimum that I had to accomplish every day and that was eight hours. And that routine is very important, especially with training. Uh, I'm curious, like, you know, when you're 
you're getting ready and you're going to fly or we're going to go to fucking South Africa and sleep on someone else's couch for, you know, to get ready for this tournament and it breaks up your whole routine, but at least you have that basis, you know, that your, your training has gotten you to a point. But do you find that yeah. you know, when you sit down to compete, you know, at a land somewhere in a foreign country or, you know, just under circumstances that you, your body's not acclimated to, right? Because I think, do you think that kills a lot of people in competition as well? They could get tired at, at, at international competitions. So basically, I would always try to arrive pretty early in the country I was competing in, like the week of. So if I had a tournament that following weekend, I'll be like, oh, I need to be there Saturday or Sunday in that country so I can get used to the time uh, ch- uh, change and so forth. And, you know, and I had to have someone always fly with me. So Zen was like one of my training partners that kind of flew everywhere with me. Um, and we would set up a land center in, in the uh, hotel or <clears throat> wherever, and we would train. And we would get ready for the tournament. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we kind of kept the same schedule for the most part. I mean, you know, maybe in those countries they had breakfast in the morning. So we'd go have breakfast in the morning downstairs. And But, like, for tournament time, you know, I would ha- I would definitely have breakfast in the morning. I would have a pretty big breakfast for the morning. I'd have, like, a full breakfast, right? And I always try to have with a full breakfast, like, at least two hours before my match or maybe three hours before my match. Um probably three hours. So like if I had a match at noon, I would want to go out breakfast at 8 a.m. And so I had breakfast at 8 a.m., 8 20, wherever it is, go out breakfast, come upstairs around nine. Okay. Let's play for two hours. Let's get, let's get, uh, eight games in. So we play eight games and then it's like, okay, it's getting close to tournament time. Oh, we got an extra 15. Let's play one more game. Oh, we got an extra 15. Let's play one more game. And then basically you're just waiting for like them to say, Hey, we need you down, down here, a separate computer. Then we, then you go down a separate computer. And then basically I don't eat the rest of the day. I, uh, only drink water. Um, and I just don't eat. Yeah. No eating, no eating is allowed. Uh, eating puts me in a food coma personally. So I just didn't want that to ever happen. And I basically, I just want to be flowing, you know, make sure I stay warm. I'd always wear like a pullover fleece when I competed and, um, and, uh, drink a lot of water, a lot of water. A lot of people think that, you know, a, a warrior goes to battle hungry, right? You know, you, First of all, because your body's digesting, right? You get into a food coma or whatever it is, or just, just in general, like if you're, if your body is putting energy towards digesting, you know, bread or, you know, something that's not easy to digest, your brain's not working at full capacity. And also there's the part of it that's kind of more of an ethos, but it's like, um, you know, when you have a battle going on between two people, let's call it a, an actual warfare, you know, and they're going to kill each other. The hungry man has more to fight for than the guy who's got everything in a full stomach and, you know, a wife to go home to it. It's a, it's a scary situation, but you, you kind of competed like a caged animal a lot. And that's, <laughs> like you, you it, like it showed that I was a Neanderthal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you were like, you, you really did. You'd show up and you just, you know, no mer- zero mercy. Uh, yeah. And you and, uh, you and I, Machiavelli sort of kind of pioneered that in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I don't, I didn't know about Machiavelli's uh, going hungry strike. <laughs> I don't know about going uh, hungry, but I mean, like, just being absolutely brutal. Yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest thing is like, you know, being fatal, like having my name fatality in the first place. Why I chose it at a young age, or like, I chose the name like when I was like eleven or twelve or thirteen years old. Like, it was, gosh, Mortal Kombat came out. I, I always forget like the exact time I, I chose it, but I was definitely like twelve or thirteen. And it was when I was logging on BBS before the internet came out. And 
Um, I like the aim fatality because in the game Mortal Kombat, the guy's already dead, but you want to rip his head off now. And and that's what kind of fatality meant to me is like, you know, like why I chose the name is because like I want it to be about no mercy. I know you're dead, but I want you to never come back. You know, I want you to never forget this moment. So it's kind of like the final blow. It's the it's the fatality. So um that was like kind of like my demeanor. I wanted to give no one hope. You know, if I if I gave up and let a guy get a couple more frags at the end of a game, that could give him a confidence boost. He could think, oh, I, I can kill him. I can frag him. Mm-hmm. So my whole career, I was always about finishing to the last second. No mercy, go for it all, and make sure this guy never forgets. So let's transition now. We're, I think, an hour or so in, and I, I want to get you out of here in an hour and a half if we can. So with uh, brand building, that's kind of the – I'm not diminishing in any way your esports stuff, but your brand building is kind of like the big story to me. The, the fact that – I mentioned Machiavelli earlier, actually. Like you guys were some of the first esports guys to do the same thing that Michael Jordan did where it's like, you know, hey, if you want to be competitive, you got to wear these fucking shoes. You know, marketing yourself, putting your name brand – on you know graphics cards and just equipment you know making sure that people knew i don't know that is interesting but here's a here's a product that can make you compete a little bit better like me this is the equipment that i use and that is a very powerful tool what made you yeah, decide that was the route to go well i mean i looked at kind of the esports space, space in general i mean i've been a part of it since the you know since the internet came out. I mean, I've been a part of esports and gaming, competitive online gaming forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, back to Quake 1, Doom 2, Duke Nukem, all those type of games back in the day. I played all of them. But I was stuck in my Midwest home with no support from the family to travel to, you know, the, the, the E3s back in the day, competing for a Ferrari and all that kind of stuff. I was like, I was so jealous. I like, you know, that when a Thresh won, the, won that Ferrari, I was like, God damn, I would love to go and compete in that. That would have been so cool. And, you know, it, you know, it's just been fun to compete, man. Like that's like that's all like that's the excitement, you know. And uh, when I saw Dennis win that Ferrari, I was like, wow, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I just being in this space and watching kind of everything doing, like I watch all these companies making products for gamers and so forth. They weren't even making it for gamers; they were just making product. They were making mouse pads, and they're just it wasn't even a gaming product yet. Like I mean, Logitech had the Wingman gaming mouse back a long time ago in like 1997. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I saw it. Like, okay, this company decided to make a mouse that they already made. It was called Mouseman 95. And they were like, oh, we're going to make a gaming version of it. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like, they're actually thinking like an athlete would that they need better equipment. They need something better to right. play Quake better, you know, or whatever it was. So every Quake player pretty much had, like, back in the day had a wingman. They had a wingman or an Intelli mouse, one of the two. And, uh, and so obviously me playing as much as I did, I saw an opportunity to make things, you know, I saw that, you know, if I play for an extremely long time on this hard surface, I have pain in my wrist. Well, I don't want pain in my wrist when I play, when I play for six hours or when I play for four hours. Like I had to take breaks. I had to get a towel out and put it on my forearm to, so that my wrist would float in the air so I could play more quick, mm-hmm. you know, and I just thought it was ridiculous that I had to worry about injury because I wanted to play too much. And so I that gave me thoughts in the 90s about making, you know, some different things like making, you know, I was thinking about making a glove with rubberized uh, stuff in the wrist and so forth. And I, I kind of go through my checklist of things I want to create for gamers. And I think of like how physical, how, 
how good is it? Okay, that thing's gonna get sweaty and nasty. Uh, like you know, you start thinking about all the like things that people will want to use and think that are cool and what they'll buy and what's functional to compete. So I found this printer pad. A company made this printer pad that you put a printer on so it wouldn't, I guess, scrape up your table or whatever, or I don't know, not shake, or I don't know why they made it. But this printer pad was an amazing mouse pad. It was the biggest printer pad. It was 17 inches by 14 inches. It was, it was bigger than every mouse pad out there in the market. But they were marketing this thing as a printer pad. It wasn't even a mouse pad. And so I took that idea and called uh, called up the company after three years of using the printer pad as a mouse pad. Uh, over the next two three years, every Counter Strike player bought the same mouse, the same printer pad, because I was doing massive amount of interviews telling about talking about this printer pad, and I increased this company's sales like threefold. I called them up and talked to the guy who runs the whole business in Utah, and I go, "Hey, um, uh, this is Jonathan Wendell Fatality. Uh, just curious." How many printer pads have you sold in the last three years? Have you have you guys went up in sales? It's like, yeah, we've actually tripled in sales. It's amazing. And then I said on the phone, you're welcome. <laughs> and then, then he's like, what? It's like, well, let me explain to you why you're selling three times as much more than, than you were. And I told him the story about me doing all these interviews and being world champion and all these things. And he was like, oh, my God, you're the reason. And so, because he had no idea, he had no idea why we're they're selling more printer pads to CompUSA, Circuit City, and all these different stores. He had no idea why, why it was happening. And so, after I talked to him on the phone for a while, we started doing business deal together. And he was like, "Oh, if you can keep moving the business forward, I'll give you X percentage, and you know, so on, so on." And and I was like, "Well, how much can you sell me the mouse pad for?" And I actually put the Fatality logo on it, and we can sell it as a gaming mouse pad for gamers. And he and he gave me the price. I was like, "Okay, I'll I'll buy a, a crate." You know, I'll buy a full crate. And it was like, I don't know, it was like seven grand to get, you know, thousands of mouse pads, wherever it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then basically I started creating a website, creativefatality.com, and started putting uh, the product for sale on there. And I started making, you know, five or 10 grand a month selling mouse pads. Uh, it was like literally overnight, it just started happening. Uh, and then I started calling Europe up. I started calling dis- distributors in Europe and start, was like, hey, you guys start carrying my product. I started shipping crates of Fatality mouse pads over to Europe by boat, uh, and then uh, eventually to like Japan and in uh, Asia. So it was like all of a sudden I was selling to Asia, Europe, and America these Fatality mouse pads, and basically I was the guy who you know cr- created the large gaming mouse pad. And now you see everyone makes a large gaming mouse pad now. It's pretty much synonymous. Everyone has to have it as like their marquee thing they have to have for it as a brand or as a company now uh but uh but yeah that's how it started uh the, the mousepad business and obviously that you know gave me a spark i was like man i gotta make a lot more things for gamers and so then i just started you know looking at the market and you know you looked at we looked at motherboards and you know we obviously got into motherboards with abit and then asrock um <clears throat> we created the gaming we created the gaming division Across the across, the, you know, Republic of Gamer didn't exist. MSI Gaming did not exist. All these things did not exist before Fatality. Fatality was the first, and we were the first one to make gaming motherboards that were specifically built for gamers. So, so we made everything like between a gaming motherboard and just another motherboard. So uh, the biggest thing is the consumer has no idea what to buy. That's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. 
So the consumer has no idea to buy. I went to Micro Center and look at the shelf and I saw A125XE251235AX5. I'm like, dude, which one is for gaming? Like, there's no way to know unless you talk to some expert. There's no way to know. Like back then, that's what that's how bad it was. You just had no idea what you were buying. Like, and and you'd have to rely on someone that worked there that could tell you, okay, this is the best one, and and so forth. So I wanted to help the consumers out to make it an easier choice for them. Buy Fatality because it means gaming. You know that this thing works. This, if this is the performance level, this is your entry level. This is the bare minimum to get into esports. You want professional? This is what professionals use to compete with on the biggest stage. You want champion level? This is what the people that have too much money or just want all the bells and whistles, they'll buy the champion uh, division, the series. So that was kind of the idea behind it. And ABIT understood it. We started launching it. Obviously, the amount of PR uh, that I was getting at the time, I mean, it was it was just a ham and egg deal. Like, we're just, it, it, everything made sense. And we just started selling a lot of motherboards across the globe. And uh, then with ASRock, you know, ASRock was known as kind of like a super low-end budget uh, brand um, in 2010. And we signed a deal with them to bring Fatality brand into into their house and basically started making Fatality gaming motherboards underneath the ASRock brand. And basically, we changed ASRock's position as a company. They're no longer known as the low-budget uh, brand. They're known as making mid- to high-tier-level product as well now. And so we kind of changed Asrock's image. So when I look for manufacturers to work with, I look for opportunity where they don't have a gaming division uh, or whatnot, and and try to bring in the Fatality brand into that uh, specific product line. And then you know, if I if I can give actual input to how to make the product, um, you know, like making headphones with Creative Labs and and so forth, I actually have hand-on design control. You know, where I say I need the headphones to be like this. I need this kind of closure so i you know if i'm at a tournament like this is how it is or if i want to be at home and just i want to hear outside i need these kind of ear cups uh this cord needs to be like this length uh you know i want removable microphone on on the headset and we sold over two million units of the fatality headphone with creative uh so we you know that was kind of like my expertise is that i knew what i needed to compete to win but also i knew what the consumer wanted and so I would build certain things for consumers and certain things for me specifically to play and win on the biggest stage. Uh, so that was kind of the, you know, that's the whole kind of idea behind Fatality Branding is to just make products for gamers to help them play to their full potential, but also make it easier for consumers to know what to buy and not to buy. And you can see everyone's kind of copied it. You know, everyone's kind of copied that messaging. And, uh, and now it's kind of just, it's, you know, now you have a lot of fake brands out there that don't really, they didn't live in the battlefield like I did, like actually do the actual, you know, actually lived it, you know. Um, so that's kind of like where I have like a one leg up now is that, you know, I'm an authentic brand, whereas some of these gaming brands, they don't, they're just some fake na- made up name. Uh, you know, they don't, they just, it says gaming on it. And now, now it's a gaming product. Like it's, it's, uh, it's kind of ridiculous, but you know, people are just trying to make money off gaming when you know they're not really, a, a, you know, technically a part of it. Uh, but uh, but you know, it, it's a weird situation. So I, that's what I'm working on with the Fatality Brands to keep being authentic and keep doing what I'm doing and uh, keep you know trying to make products for gamers. And that's what I'm what I've been working on uh, a little bit recently. Um, but I, I've been working more on 
the ready upside of business, which is you know trying to help gaming esports grow in general, and that's another complete different conversation than the one we're already on. But uh, you know, I, I have a lot of ambition to help esports and gaming continue to grow, and I want the masses to be as heavily a part of it as possible, but make it easy for them, simple, just like I did with the products. There's so many great things that you did with the products. First of all, you know, you are in a position where you were getting exactly what you wanted, right? You're cutting out your own personal cost of, you know, having to buy things because the company's making it, you're demoing it, you're getting it honed into your specifications. And then not only that, but you're making money off of it because you were selling it to other people. So like you, you literally turned a situation that for most people is a cost and turned it into a huge benefit for yourself. So, well, li- it's li- licensing. You know, if you have a brand, you have your own IP. You can you can work with different companies that are manufacturers that are willing to put the money out there for the product and and pay a licensing fee to have the brand. Mm-hmm. And part of the licensing fee is that you get the person, you get you get me, uh, you get you know my insight, uh, and, and you get you get the branding. You know, so and you get the authenticity that comes with it. So. Um, it's kind of a win-win situation for both parties. I mean, obviously, licensing, you're not getting the lion's share of the uh, profits because you're not putting the money into the product development and all the sales channels and all the things that they already have set up. Um, but, you know, that was, that was actually what I was going to do back in the day. I was going to do it all myself and create my own sales channels and do everything myself. Um, but... You know, Creative Labs basically came back and says we're going to do exactly what you ask. And uh, and the next, you know, the next day it was basically like open turning on the faucet to some degree. Uh, you know, we were selling to over a hundred countries, and uh, you know, we were just selling, selling, selling. And so it was, uh, it it was, you know, low uh, low risk, very low risk on my side, extreme upside, and also allowed me to. Comp- keep competing and keep winning my tournaments, which, you know, which I still need to do because the fatality brand wasn't in orbit yet. I mean, you know, and the reality is still not in like complete orbit, but like people know fatality, they know the brand, they know, they know me. Uh, so it does have legs. Um, but you know, like it, Nike and Apple's in orbit, you know, like they're, they're freaking in space, right? Uh, Tesla's in, literally in space, you know, like, so, you know, my brand's not there, but like, um, uh, you know, that's kind of like my goal someday is to have it, you know, uh, be at a higher, higher, higher place in the atmosphere, I guess you could say, in this weird, uh, weird choice of words. I mean, knowing your personality, I know you won't accept anything less than like, the, you know, being the absolute highest, best thing that you can possibly be. But, you know, the truth is like you're making a very comfortable living doing exactly what you love. And that's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that at all. So, I mean, is... You know, is selling gaming products ever going to be Tesla? I mean, probably not, but you're, <laughs> yeah. you're definitely winning. That's yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm trying to conquer my demographic, my, you know, my endemic, uh, you know, area and, uh, you know, just trying to be, um, a positive force in the esports gaming world. And I think I'm accomplishing that with Ready Up and with Fatality and, uh, you know, with these community events I did recently and going to do next week. Um, you know, I, I think I have a good hold on it. Let's dive into that because you mentioned earlier how, you know, you were trying to focus more of the business on, you know, promoting the esports and everything. And, you know, as you said, fatality, the brand, right? Like, so for you, you will always to my generation be the guy, like there's no erasing your brand from 
people my age's name or, you know, brain. But, you know, as time goes on, as you said, there are a lot of other people competing and, you know, doing the same thing or trying to do the same thing that you already did. And therefore the market, you know, becomes more saturated. And so, you know, like a kid that today, right. Uh, some, I don't know, 15 year old guy, he's probably not as aware of fatality as he is of, you know, some big Twitch streamer, whoever they're really into, you know, Rafa's out there, just team liquid in general, like, or there's plenty more going on in esports other than just, you know, quake and AFPS. But with you focusing now on diabolical, I'm really curious for, you know, your thoughts on the game and also like, how do you see it benefiting you, uh, you know, brand wise, because if you build up arena shooters, you, you lend your name and your prowess to that game, that is going to bring over a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have played it. And then that will turn around and benefit you the way I see it because you'll sell more products. Yeah. I mean, right now we're in the rebuilding phase of making products again and so forth, but like the fatality with diabolical, um, you know, the idea was that I wanted to start doing these community events in general and not just for arena shooters, but for all like up and coming games. Like, you know, I, if, if, this was, you know, three years ago, I would have done an event for PUBG. I would ask PUBG for some money to give away to the community and, and use my brand to uh, leverage against um, to throw an event. You know, um, obviously at this time, I, I was able to meet the production team of, Fra- of Fragadelphia guys. And they were like, you got to start doing these, these fatality events. Like, I'm, I'm in. I just need the team, you know. And, and they were like, well, we're your team. So basically... We did our first uh, show last weekend with Diabotical. I reached out to Too Good and uh, you know said, "Hey, I'd love to do an event for you and lend my name to your game and so forth." And typically, these type of deals, I would get paid a, a pretty good check to be associated uh, in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, for me, it's like you know, I have a soft spot for Arena FPS. I have a soft spot for uh, Too Good making the game from scratch and building out to what he has now. Um, you know, and, and I don't have like a direct relationship with the Quake Champions, really. So uh, it just felt like a natural fit. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thought it'd be a good game to kick off the Fatality uh, series of events. Um, and we had a great showing uh, this last uh, weekend. We had, about, I think, we had over seventeen thousand viewers um, for the weekend, uh, which I think I was pretty happy with. Um, and the response I got from, back from the Diabolical community and others, you know, everyone loved it. Everyone had a really good time, and uh, you know, I just I, I want to do more of those. Um, but you know, I'm not just limited to the diabolical. Like I'm doing, we did the USA event. We're doing the European event, uh, December 12th to 13th, I believe. Having an open tournament and then an inv- invite with the open players that qualified, and uh, we're going to do another diabolical thing. And then in the foreseeable future, future for 2021, you know, if there's an opportunity to work with diabolical more, definitely would love to do it. Um, I'm not sure if you saw my tournament I, I, we threw but uh it was diabolical aim arena um it was actually a lot of fun uh a lot of action uh the reason why i chose aim arena as the game mode for the tournament was mainly just because it's pure excitement it's pure it's mono e mono it's still one v one but it's just like it's constant engagement i'm not a big fan of games where you have to hit plus back or run away and you know I mean, I understand where I came from and collecting items and armor and all that stuff. And like, that's like the nitty gritty of arena FPS. Um, but you know, I'm also trying to think of the viewer too. Like, what does the viewer want to see and what, what, what excites them? What makes it, uh, exciting? You know, when, when you watch the UFC fight and watch guys fight in a small octagon, it's not like the octagon changes every day. It's the same octagon every time everyone fights. Mm-hmm. And it's, 
and it's close corners so people can't fly and run away all the time. You know, there's eventually they're going to get, you know, put up against the fence and there's going to be some punches thrown. And in Amy Arena, I felt like kind of the same thing. It's like this small arena style map. People just can't run forever. It's impossible. You're eventually going to get put up against side the rope and that's going to be that type of arena. So for me, I just like, I liked it a lot. I thought it was really uh, easy for people to follow. Uh, even if you're not into esports or gaming, like it was very easy to watch and follow and understand, um, you know, and you didn't have to worry about learning like, you know, five people shooting their ultimate off at once and casting spells. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there's a place for everything. And I just, I just wanted to start here as kind of like my first uh, step uh, in doing these community events. And, you know, down the road, you know, I'll look at other games too. You know, if there's something to do in a MOBA game or an RTS game or, uh, or other shooter games, I'm going to do those events uh, as long as I get support from the game publisher to, to do them. And, you know, I think, I think it's just great for the community in general. And uh, with my brand, I think I can, I can pull off some cool, fun things and do a professional job. I think it's really interesting. You mentioned how you chose a Marina for a reason and diabolical in general has been very heavily focused towards like the, the clan arena style game types. You also mentioned the, you know, what does the viewer want to see? You know, what, what interests them? And I'm thinking about like the potential new, you know, gamer who wants to like get into arena shooters, right? If you jump straight into duel, that that's going to be a very hard road to, you know, it's going to discourage a lot of people and, yeah. and not everybody's going to be like hyper competitive and crazy. Like, you know, you are where they're just like, I'll, I'll do anything to learn and be better. You know, some people just really want to play the game and that's the vast majority of, you know, your potential customer base is people who just want to have fun and enjoy it. So I think that's a really smart move on their part, you know, to focus on the, the more casual kind of game type, you know, the, Clan Arena has always been the, like, yeah, let's just hop in and, you know, play a few rounds of Clan Arena kind of thing. And it doesn't require so much um, from a new player to learn as far as item timing and everything goes. So it's a win-win. Yeah, I mean, the yeah the Wipeout is, I think, their game mode that they are pushing the most, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's like a Clan Arena with, like, this last egg survival kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a cool concept. Like, as a veteran rock arena guy i mean i've been playing rock arena for since quake one days uh it's cool I, I i love it and uh you know it's fun to play um but yeah i just wanted a, an easier path to entry to arena shooters and i thought amy arena was was that um and the people that were part of it loved it but you know you still have people that are scared you know people are scared of playing arena shooters because they just get smashed um yeah. you know even if they're even if they have good aim from Call of Duty or Counter-Strike, whatever deal is, they just, they still get smashed in arena shooters. And, you know, one guy talked about in, you know, in a tweet, he goes, he's like, I just got 0 and 15 in the, the Fatality Diabolical Aim Arena Tournament. And it's like, I'll stand by it till the day I die, but arena shooters are the best gamers in the world. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of cool to uh, see, like, you know, another player who's actually talented at other games uh, say that. And uh, it shows you, you know, arena shooters are just tough, man. Like it's, it's one of those things that it's a unique skill that not everyone has, and it's just uh, playing one v one deathmatch is not easy. <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed spending time with you, man. This has been really cool and informative and a great learning experience for me. I'm sure the audience is going to appreciate it too. No, thank you, man. It was a pleasure talking to you, and 
I think that's super cool uh, what you do too, man. It sounds uh, pretty dope. All right, man, that was fucking cool. Thank you to Jonathan Wendell, Fatality, for, you know, giving us the time of day for the interview. That was really cool of him. Honestly, he didn't have to, seriously. And I want to say thank you to all of our supporters, Paul, Moose, Dots, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Red Eyes, Anthony, Robert, Jack, Brandy, Fred, Lord Revan, you're all incredible. Thank you so much for, you know, giving your hard-earned dollar to The Keep. It's seriously humbling to know that you guys care so much. I, I can't stand it. I really can't stand it. Those out there listening, uh, if you're wondering, like, hey, how can I give back to The Keep and be like those people that just got named off? Um, well, obviously, they're all Patreon supporters. You can go to inthekeep.com forward slash support. And become a Patreon supporter yourself. You can also donate through other ways. Uh, PayPal, credit card, Venmo, they're all available. We also have affiliate links if you would like to, uh, you know, do your Amazon shopping through our link. It won't cost you anything extra. You just pay through Amazon. Jeff Bezos doesn't quite get as much, and we get a little bit. I mean, if you're going to shop through Amazon anyway, I don't really see what it matters. If you're thinking about starting your own podcast, I highly recommend Buzzsprout. That's what I use. Seriously, that's what I use. I'm not sponsoring them because of any other reason. I'm not actually sponsoring them. This is just an affiliate link. I'm just telling you that I use Buzzsprout, and if you choose to use Buzzsprout, you should go through our link on inthecube.com forward slash support. And we'll uh, give a little bit back to the Drown God. You can also use Instacart. If you want to buy groceries and you're too fat and lazy and, you know, too much of a piece of shit to go out and buy your own groceries, Instacart will have your groceries there in, uh, you know, as little as an hour. So you can use that link too. But until next time, stay in the keep.